This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 20th, 2008. Spanair Flight 5022, a McDonnell Douglas MD-82 with 172 people on board, is preparing to take off from Madrid, Spain, en route to Gran Canaria Island. The crew has already had to abort one takeoff due to a problem with the temperature probe. Now, running more than an hour behind schedule, the crew starts taking off for a second time. Immediately upon becoming airborne, things go wrong. The plane can't seem to climb properly and begins banking to the right. The plane only gets to about 40 feet off the ground before crashing and ending up in a riverbed. 154 people perish with only 18 surviving this incident. What happened that kept this plane from taking off like normal? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris here to talk about planes. Hi, Chris. Hello. As always, I want to remind everyone to follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at Black Box Down Pod. We post images and uh, videos and things that you know we can't necessarily adequately convey in an audio podcast. Uh, there's some very awful images of uh, of this incident. Um, the plane taking off can't quite get into the air and uh, and ends up crashing. You think? It's funny, one time years ago, mm-hmm. I was on a plane with a friend of mine and uh, we were taking off and uh, we were, you know, climbing out of the airport and we we're maybe only 300, you know, a couple hundred feet off the ground. I would say okay. 300 feet off the ground. And uh, my friend looks out the window and says, I don't know why he said this, by the way. He said, you know, if something goes wrong at this point in the flight, it's, uh, it's comforting that we're still so close to the ground. And uh, I said, yeah. you know, you can die falling off the roof of your house, right? Like you don't have to be very high. For something, uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, let me make you feel worse, <laughs> right? So, and the reason I bring that up is this flight did not get very far off the ground. I think at most they got forty feet of elevation off the ground mm-hmm. uh, and crashed. You know, when things started going wrong, they were only at twenty-five feet, and uh, they only climbed to forty, and then they end up crashing immediately. Um, and let and the plane ends up in a riverbed right by the airport, and most of the people on this flight perish. You know, it's an awful thing. There's a tremendous amount of speed happening. You know, going on and the body is very fragile. Yeah, it is. I mean, just listening to the intro, I was like, oh, well, at least they didn't get, um, I guess it didn't matter how I th- they got They still You're still yeah. going very fast. You know, if you think yeah. about being in a car and getting into a car crash, you know, you think it would be awful to be in a car crash, you know, 60, 70 miles an hour. And a plane's going faster than that when it takes off. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. Because, I mean, I mean, when it's taken off, the plane goes, what, like 150? Yeah, let's say you're going somewhere in that neighborhood, right? It's like you're going... Over double the speed you would probably go on a highway. That's a really fast car crash. Right. Uh, you wouldn't expect to survive that kind of car crash. Like, I say this only to try to contextualize it because I know, like, like, I think our listeners, like you, will hear that 40 feet number and think, well, it's not that bad. It's like, you're, they're still going really fast. Yeah. If you were in a car going 170 miles an hour and 40 feet in the air, you'd yeah, be able- that would, <laughs> yeah, that would not be good. Yeah. I don't think we're going to get into the, the, the nitty gritty on the way this plane hit the ground, mm-hmm. but it also crashes into a riverbed at high speeds. It kind of hits the bank. Oh. A lot of the survivors end up in the river as well. It's just a terrible set of circumstances on top of the fact that, you know, it's a plane crash. So I want to ask you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do things a little differently this episode okay. right now, Chris, right off the bat. Do you have any idea what might have happened here? This is a plane going to take off. You know, they have a mechanical problem. They have to get it fixed. They're running late. They go to take off for a second time, and they can't climb. They only get to about 40 feet, and then uh, the plane banks to the right and then crashes into a riverbed. Okay. We've only done, I think this is like our 33rd episode. We've done a little over 30 episodes. <laughs> In all of the things you've learned so far, do you have any theories immediately? You said there was a problem with the temperature probe? Yes. 
it was reading temperatures that were too high. It's a, it's not a pitot tube, but it's one of those probes that sits outside the plane near mm-hmm. the cockpit. And it was reading temperatures that were crazy hot. Uh, a little spoiler for later in the episode, the, the maintenance crew comes in and disables it. They basically trip the breaker so that it's not activating. It's, it's part of a probe that operates on the plane's de-icing system. And since they're not going to encounter any icing conditions, it's okay for them to fly without it. So they disable it. If they can't control the plane, it sounds like the hydraulic system is off or not working correctly. Is there any? Is that no? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just curious. Like, I, I, and I'm, I'm kind of giving this for a moment for our listeners to maybe try to think about it and see if they yeah. have any speculation as well. I'm always curious. Like, whenever we start looking into these, this is an incident I wasn't terribly familiar with before we started uh-huh. digging into it. And uh, like, when I first read the premise and what happened in the accident, in my mind, I'm always trying to guess. Well, what did you think it was? I guess correctly, so I don't want to say. Oh man, so I was I was wrong. I guess I assume. But uh, that that's something that investigators always say that they should never do. They never try to jump to conclusions before finding evidence, right? They don't want to make bad conclusions. So if you ever pursue a career in uh, with the NTSB or accident investigation, uh, don't do what I did. <laughs> okay, so well, let's give some background. Let's uh, let's paint the picture, and we'll give the full story. Span Air Flight 5022 was a passenger flight, and it was going from Barcelona to Gran Canaria, uh, but it had a stopover in Madrid uh, in August 20th, uh, 2008. Mm-hmm. And the flight was crewed by Captain Antonio Garcia Luna, who was 39 years old, with 8,476 flight hours, and First Officer Francisco Javier Mulet, who was 31 years old, and had 1,276 flight hours. The plane used was a 15-year-old McDonnell Douglas MD-82 that had 31,963 hours and 28,133 cycles. There were four other crew members and 166 passengers on board. So kind of an old plane. Not the oldest. Not the oldest. Fairly experienced captain and a kind of a new first officer, but, you know, still plenty of hours for him. On the morning of the accident itself, the flight crew had a pre-flight briefing at 8 a.m. and then they boarded the plane. And the flight departed from Barcelona at 8.55 a.m. and arrived in Madrid at 10.13 a.m. First flight, uneventful, no abnormalities were reported. And the flight to Gran Canaria was scheduled for 1 p.m., so the crew exited the plane during the downtime. And at 1.06, the crew contacted clearance delivery, and they began their startup procedures. The plane left the terminal at 1.19 p.m. and started to taxi to runway 36 left. At 1.24 p.m., air traffic control cleared flight 5022 for takeoff. And this was acknowledged by the crew, but a couple minutes later, the crew contacted air traffic control and said they're going to have to cancel the takeoff and exit the runway. Like I said earlier, they found a mechanical Mm -hmm. problem. So air traffic control asks if they want to return to parking, but you know they said they're going to talk to the company's technical services before making a decision. And the crew detected an abnormally high RAM air temperature probe reading. Uh, the flight data recorder actually recorded a rise in temperature on the probe from 56 degrees Celsius to 104 degrees Celsius during the taxi, which is 132 degrees Fahrenheit to 219 degrees Fahrenheit. Was there something like really hot in the engine? Or was it like overheating or something? Well, this was a summer day. Uh, I believe that the temperature at the airport at the time was 85 degrees. But on mm-hmm. the tarmac, you know, it gets much hotter. Okay. So it was fairly hot. You know, if you think about all the asphalt and everything with the tarmac, you know, it's really hot. It's probably, you know, high 90s, if not 100 degrees out there. But still, if it's reading 219 degrees Fahrenheit, that's way too hot. Yeah. Captain Luna contacted Maintenance Control Center for guidance and information regarding the problem, and they instructed the captain to reset one of the breakers in the cockpit. It's uh, breaker Z29. So uh, Luna replied he had already done this and was advised to ask the maintenance at the airport for the assistance. So basically, he calls the company's tech support. Mm -hmm. They tell him to do something. He says, I already did that. And they tell him, okay, we'll talk to the maintenance people there at the airport then. Hmm. 
The crew contacted Spanair's ground assistance agent to request a maintenance service, and the agent sent a request to replace the aircraft in case this one would not be able to fly, and there was another plane available to use. So the agent informed the crew that there was a replacement aircraft available, but the crew decided to wait on the maintenance report before switching planes. So basically, like they know they can oh, switch man. planes if they want to, but you know they, they figure, well, let's just see if we can fix this problem because getting everyone off the plane, getting everyone onto a new plane, moving the baggage yeah. and everything, it's going to put them further behind. And they're already you know running late at this point. They then taxied back to a parking and got a spot on one of the aprons at 1.42 p.m. During the taxi back, the Ram Air temperature probe reached 104 degrees Celsius. Like I said earlier, it's about 219 degrees Fahrenheit. The report also notes that the flap deflection parameter remained at 11 degrees during the entire taxi back to parking. So basically, when they come back to parking, their flaps were still down. Normally, you don't do that. Normally, like when you exit the uh, runway and you know you're not going to take off, you you pull your flaps back up, but theirs were still deployed. Did they just leave them deployed on accident or were they not going up? They just left them out. They were responding properly, but uh, they just left them out for some reason. Probably because they were focused on fixing, you know, the problem. Yeah, yeah. Maintenance technicians did not find anything abnormal while visually inspecting the aircraft. A technician then used the ice protection meter selector and heat switch to see if the ram air temperature circuit was energized. So basically they're just checking to see if this circuit has electricity running through it, right? To see if mm-hmm. it's uh to see where the problem lies, just part of the troubleshooting. The switch is supposed to provide power to heating elements in the pitot tubes and temperature probe. So we've talked about this before. This is all of this electrical circuitry is to heat up the pitot tubes and the temperature probes and to run the de-icing systems. Yeah. Did we talk about like just I mean th- these tubes outside are just to like help the plane understand like the outside speeds and temperature and all that stuff. We talked about that, right? Right. Yeah, I think believe we talked about that maybe even in our last episode, but we've covered that before. But just yeah. a quick refresher, like the pitot tube and all of these different probes are what feed information to the plane, to the instruments and to the autopilot. That way, you know, pilots know what their altitude is, they know what their speed is, uh, you know, wind speeds, all those kinds of things are, are maintained by these probes. So they found that the circuit to the probe had a malfunction in it. The maintenance technician checked the minimum equipment list and found that the plane could continue to operate with the probe heating and operative as long as icing conditions were not in forecast for the flight. So like I said, it's summer, the weather was favorable, so mm-hmm. uh, they, were, they were not going to encounter icing conditions. So it was okay for this plane to fly with this. So the technician actually calls his supervisor to double check that it's, this is okay. He tells the crew it's okay, they can fly the plane. They pulled the Z29 breaker to disconnect it from the electrical supply, and they put an inoperative label on it. They did a couple final checks, and the plane was released for service. So basically, there was a problem, Maintenance comes in, they look, they say, yeah, it's okay, we'll just disable it. You don't, we don't have to deal with it, you can still fly. And there was another plane ready. There was another plane ready, but according to the equipment list, according to all the checklists, it's okay, they don't need this to fly. They just have to be aware of it. The first officer at this point actually also makes a comment that they would not be able to do an automatic thrust takeoff. So the Z29 breaker is connected to the thrust rating panel, and the auto throttle cannot be energized unless a mode on that panel is set correctly. So it's possible that's why they couldn't use automatic thrust takeoff. So that Z29 breaker that they pull is connected to that thrust rating panel. And the auto throttle basically can't be used unless a mode on that panel is set correctly. So they they couldn't use their auto thrust on takeoff because of this disabled uh, breaker. Okay, but they're aware of that. Yeah, they're aware of it. And that's why the first officer brings it up like, hey, we can't use auto thrust. I'm going to try, I'm trying to contextualize this. It's a lot like if you've ever tried to fix an electrical problem in your home, you know, you're like, oh, this outlet doesn't work. I'm going to turn off the breaker at the panel. Oh, crap, that turned off my lights too, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's like you have multiple electrical things hooked up to one breaker. It's not just like every single electrical item in your house 
has its own dedicated breaker in the panel box. The breakers operate multiple different things. Yeah. So at 2.02 p.m., Captain Luna exited the plane to oversee refueling, and six minutes later, they began their startup procedure again. The crew went through their checklist, but the report notes that the seatbelt, doors, anti-collision, and cabin report items were anticipated by the captain. And that kind of implies that they were just skipped through. So when in listening to the cockpit voice recorder, the investigators realized that as they're going through the checklist, the captain's just repeating. He's not, he's not take, there's not enough time for him to actually check and then repeat oh. the values. Like he's just listening to what the first officer's saying and then just repeating it. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, that's not good. Right. Which defeats the point of a checklist. It's like you're not yeah. actually checking. You're just repeating, like kind of mimicking, like, yeah, 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 let's yeah. get on. Uh, again, they're running late. And uh, in addition to the captain just kind of uh, repeating the, the settings, the crew skipped the flaps item on the checklist. Okay. At 2.18 p.m. while taxiing, the first officer noted again how the auto throttle would not work for takeoff. Uh, he actually mm. mentions this five times while they're taxiing. He's like kind of fixated on this. He's a, he's it's obvious he's a little worried about it. Like I said, he only had about twelve hundred flight hours, and this was a little unusual for him. So he was uh, worried about this. Is he the one controlling the auto throttle? Would he have to control the throttle then? One of the pilots would have to manually control the throttle, which is not a big deal. Uh, you know, this kind of stuff happens regularly. Uh, I'm not sure who was the pilot flying at the moment during takeoff, but one of them would have the responsibility of uh, manually controlling the throttle. Okay. At 2.21 p.m., the flight was holding short of runway 36 left and went through their takeoff imminent checklist. They were then cleared for takeoff a minute later. The flight data recorder recorded a change from ground mode to air mode at 2.24 p.m. when the nose wheel left the ground. Oh, was it in the wrong mode? Is that why? Not quite. I mentioned that because that becomes important a little later. Okay. I was like, did they not realize they were in the right mode? And that's why? It, because it didn't... Mm, okay. So seconds later, the stall warning stick shaker activated, as well as the stall warning horn and voice warning. First Officer Mullet asks, engine failure? And then pulled back a little on the throttle. And the captain asks how to turn off the warning voice. The speed at this time was 168 knots, and they were at an altitude of 25 feet. So like I mentioned at the top of the episode... They're not very high off the ground. They're still really Mm -hmm. low. The pitch angle was 15.5 degrees, and they had a four-degree bank to the right. The right bank angle then increased to 20 degrees, and the throttle levers were immediately moved to their maximum thrust positions. The bank angle warning then started going off. The pitch angle increased to 18.3 degrees, and the plane reached an altitude of 40 feet. A few seconds later, the plane impacted the ground. A fire erupted, and 154 people were killed, and the remaining 18 survivors had serious injuries. The airplane was totally destroyed. So the takeoff, this all happened extremely quickly. The takeoff roll started at 2.23 and 19 seconds, and it crashed a little over a minute later at 2.24 and 24 seconds. And it was only 14 seconds from when the nose wheel lifted off the ground. Okay, yeah. And now I got an, I'm like, I've never been more anxious about hearing what happened because I was like guessing wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's there's a lot going on. There's a lot of possibilities, right? Mm -hmm. So the Civil Aviation Accident and Incident Investigation Commission ran the investigation. Uh, And one of the things that they looked at were the flaps and the slats. The slats are in the leading edges of wings and they're moved in conjunction with the flaps to help generate lift. And we've talked about these parts of the plane before. Mm -hmm. Uh, Typically, you put them down uh, when you're at lower speeds, like at landing and takeoff to help create more lift on the wing when you're going at lower speeds. So from the wreckage, they found eight flap actuators, and with these pieces, they could possibly see how the flaps were set during the takeoff. However, due to damage uh, because of the crash, the hydraulic fluid in these actuators leaked, and the commission could not determine exactly how the flaps were set. 
Uh, they then found two actuators for the slats as well, and some of the tracks that the slats move on. And they noticed that some of the slats were jammed in the retracted position, and the evidence indicates that the slats were not deployed at the moment of impact with ground, which implies that the flaps might not have been deployed either, since they work in conjunction. They couldn't recover the sensors for the flaps and slats, but they could still check the flight data recorder data, and they found from when the canceled takeoff happened to the taxi to maintenance, the flaps were set at 11 degrees, like I mentioned earlier, when they uh, first exited the runway and they go to maintenance, uh, the flaps are still set. But during the entire taxi back to the runway and takeoff, the flaps were set at zero degrees, which is the correct procedure. Like I said, they should not have flaps out when they're going to the runway. Mm-hmm. To support this, the commission knows that the stick shaker and stall warnings activated on takeoff. And there's a function with the slats that if they're in an intermediate position, like 11 degrees, the stall computer would have automatically sent a signal to the actuators to extend the slats fully. And if this happened, the flight data recorder would have recorded a disagree signal between the flaps control lever and the slats position when the slats moved to fully extended and there was no signal recorded on the flight data recorder. But So they're just trying to figure out whether or not the flaps and slats are extended. And they're looking at all the different bits of evidence that they have here to try to, to piece all of that together. And what, it, what was the general consensus? Right now, the consensus is that they did not have their flaps out for takeoff. Okay. And flaps are critical for takeoff. Oh. It's okay for them to have their flaps retracted when they're taxiing to and from the runway. That's normal Uh operating procedure. But once you're on the runway and your takeoff is is, uh, imminent, then your flaps need to be out. Because for lift? Exactly. You need that extra lift because you're going slower. Gotcha. And uh, you, and I'm sure people might be wondering, like, how can this happen, right? Like, there's checklists, and we already covered how the humans kind of ignored, well, they didn't ignore the checklist. They went through the checklist, but they didn't properly run through them. But on top of that, there's supposed to be protections to keep this from happening. Aircraft are equipped with a takeoff warning system that's supposed to provide audible warnings when something's not right during the initial part of the takeoff roll. It's supposed to give them an audible warning saying that the, the aircraft's not in the proper configuration for takeoff. But it was disabled because they flipped the breaker off the takeoff warning system is tied to the ram air temperature oh. probe that was malfunctioning so both the probe and that warning system are connected to what's called the r25 relay and this relay both routes electricity to the probe and sends control signals to the takeoff warning system so there could have been a problem with this relay because the ram air temperature probe heater activated on the ground when it's only supposed to activate when the plane's in flight and when the nose gear lifts off the ground a signal is sent to the relay that sends electricity to the probe And the signal from the nose gear was working because we know in the flight data recorder, the plane went from ground mode to air mode correctly. So basically, the probe heater malfunctioned and the takeoff warning system didn't go off. And they think there might be a malfunction with this relay. So after doing some tests, the commission found a couple of parts in the R25 relay were fused together, which caused the heater probe to malfunction. But it's uncertain if this caused the fault in the takeoff warning system. They do have evidence from previous incidents that the R25 relay is the source of malfunctions in the heater probe most of the time. And it's been shown to be the cause of malfunction in takeoff warning systems, but they can't determine if both malfunctions came from the same relay at this time. In doing this investigation, they find the source of the error for the temperature probe, and they Uh know that this relay has been known to cause malfunctions in the takeoff warning system in the past, but they can't definitively say if this was 100% which caused the takeoff warning system to malfunction in this particular incident. Okay, so it wasn't that they turned it off. It just, it might have broken the same way that 
Exactly. Okay. But they know for a fact in listening to the cockpit voice recorder that the alarms did not go off because they would have heard it. So they know that the warning system failed. They just can't definitively 100% say it's because of this relay. They did find errors in this relay, but they can't say with 100% certainty if this is what led to the warning system failing. So it's one of those things where it's like, they're pretty sure this is what it was, but with these investigations, they have to be 100% sure before making a statement. So it's pretty much understood this is uh, what led to that warning system, not uh, warning the the crew. So the commission points out that faults in microswitches in the engine levers or a fault in the central aural warning system could be the cause for the takeoff warning system not going off, but they cannot draw any conclusions from the data they collected that would be the cause of the fault that affected the takeoff warning system. Basically, it's just what I said. It's probable, but they can't say 100% certainty. But any of these reasons would not have been able to be identified by the crew since there's no cockpit indications to let them know. So basically the crew had no way of knowing the system wasn't working because there's no warning letting them know that it's not. Like, what? what's the warning for the warning? Yeah. <laughs> like, at, at what point does, uh, does, uh, does it become overwhelming? Yeah. I mean, maybe there should be a warning that the warning system isn't working. But then is there a warning system for the warning system of the warning system? Like, how deep do yeah. you need to go with these things? It reminds me of a joke uh, years ago that the Simpsons made where uh, Homer Simpson's trying to come up with inventions and he comes mm-hmm. up with an everything's okay alarm and it's like a smoke <laughs> alarm, but it's just constantly going off if everything's okay. It's like, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's like at what point is, it, is, is there just too, much, too many alerts, right? And that's uh-huh. one of the things we've talked about in previous incidents is they don't want to overwhelm the crew with too many alerts and too many uh, systems that are in their face that they need to get, pay attention to. Yeah. We're all looking for ways to save money, right? Especially now. So let me ask you this. How would you like to keep an extra $961 a year in your pocket? That's how much Gabby customers save per year on average on car and home insurance. That's why when I was shopping for insurance, I used Gabby. I mean, this is the time of year we all go shopping for insurance and Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples-to-apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, Travelers. You just link your current insurance account, and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you already have. Uh, That's exactly what I did. It was super easy to use. It uh, takes your existing coverage, looks at it, gives you exact comparisons with these other brands, shows you exactly how much they cost, so you know how much money you can save or if you already have the best plan. And like I mentioned... Gabby customers save $961 per year on average. I bet that'd be nice to have in your pocket every year. And if they can't find you savings, they'll let you know. So you can relax knowing you have the best rates out there. And that's what happened to me. I already had the best rate. That's it. Uh, and they'll never sell your info. So no annoying spam or robocalls. There's no downside. So you're probably overpaying on car and home insurance. See how much Gabby can save you. It's totally free to check. And there's no obligation. Go to Gabby.com slash black box down. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash black box down. Gabby.com slash black box down. You know what's not fair? The fact that Netflix hides thousands of shows from you based on your location then has the nerve to increase their prices on you. That's right, starting at the end of this month, they're raising prices once again. Now, you could just cancel your subscription and protest, or you could be smart about it and make sure you're getting your full money's worth using ExpressVPN. So you may not know what's on Netflix in your country is completely different than what someone in the UK or Japan has on theirs. Using ExpressVPN, you can control what country you want Netflix to think you're in. ExpressVPN has over 90 countries to choose from, so every time you run out of stuff to watch, you can just switch to another country and unlock new shows. And here's the best part. It's not just for Netflix. You can use ExpressVPN to unlock shows on other streaming services too. you got BBC iPlayer, which is free and only available in the UK. ExpressVPN is also super fast and works on your phone, laptop, even smart TVs. You can watch shows on the big screen with zero buffering. 
So be smart, stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. Don't forget to use our links. You can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. Expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown to learn more. So um, there's some conclusions here from the report. Uh, the captain decided not to use a reserve airplane that was ready and standing by. Again, I feel like I can't entirely fault the captain for that. You know, mm-hmm. according to their minimum equipment list, this plane was fine to fly. Uh, it seems like he talked to central maintenance. Then he talked to maintenance on the ground. Maintenance on the ground talked to their supervisor. You know, everyone went through the correct procedures for certifying that this plane was okay to fly. Yeah. So even though they list that here, I feel like that's a little unfair towards the captain. The crew did not observe the sterile cockpit principle. In addition to using cellular telephones while taxiing, they held conversations in the cockpit with a third person on topics that were irrelevant to their flight activities. This contributed to distracting the crew from its flight duties. Uh, And this is because during and after that maintenance check while they were taxiing, there was a flight attendant in the jump seat of the cockpit that was asking questions about what was going on. And we've talked about some of these things about crew resource management, sterile cockpit. Uh, They were obviously distracted, which might be one of the reasons why they missed their flaps check on the checklist and why the captain just kind of read things back without actually checking uh, that they were correct on the checklist. Mm -hmm. The pilots used the Spanair checklists but did not fully complete them. Some items in the checklists were omitted and the actions required in other items were not carried out. Deviations occurred during the execution of operation procedures and the lack of oversight resulted in the flaps and slats not being selected and in the selected position not being verified. So we talked about that. There were some times where they omitted the, the check for the flaps. And when they, they did check the flaps, they didn't actually check it. The captain just kind of parroted what the correct number should be instead of actually Going through the looking motions. at them right, yeah. and making sure. The first officer's attention was focused on the possibility of doing a takeoff with the auto throttle disengaged to the detriment of properly carrying out his duties in the cockpit. So again, the first officer was just kind of focused on the fact that the auto throttle was disengaged. And in fact, if you listen to uh, what I said during the actual incident, he questioned, is there an engine failure? And he pulled back on the throttle, which absolutely should not have been done in this case. The The problem was that they didn't have enough lift. If anything, the throttle should, should be, have pushed more. Right. And that's what the captain does uh, at the last second. He tries to increase the throttle. So, I mean, was he like at that point thinking about, oh, not taking off or like trying to trying to go back down to the ground? No, he was thinking that they had an engine failure. And if you remember, we've talked about this in the past uh-huh. when there's a surge or when there's a problem with the engine, typically you pull back uh, to clear a surge or to like help the engine oh. kind of reset. But they're way too low for that uh, yeah, yeah. at this point. That's uh, that's definitely not what should be done here. Do you know there's that point where it's like you you pass the like the Rubicon as, as far as takeoff? Like mm-hmm. where is that on this plane where you have to go forward and you can't try and go back down? Okay, that's kind of a complicated question. Um, I'll try to answer it as much as I can. Okay. So... Honestly, it's on the runway still when you're accelerating. Uh, In the most broad sense, when uh, a plane is accelerating down the runway, preparing for takeoff, the crew calls out speeds. And Mm -hmm. there's a speed at which they can no longer stop the plane with the amount of runway they have left. Yeah. And then it's like they have to take off no matter what. So if you ever listen to cockpit voice recorder recordings uh, and you hear a crew talking, uh, when they're doing their takeoff roll, you'll hear them say V1. And that indicates they need to take off. Like there is not enough runway for them to stop. When they reach their takeoff speed, you'll hear someone, one of the crew say, rotate. And at that point, they have to uh, start their takeoff. So realistically, 
it's on the ground. They have to make that decision before they even take off. And yeah, they had passed that, but that were there right. were there were no issues when they passed it. Correct. They didn't realize that the flaps weren't deployed correctly because they hadn't left the ground. Correct. But the takeoff warning system normally would have told them that there was a problem with their takeoff configuration. And at that point, they can quickly look and then figure out the flaps aren't engaged. And it's not ideal, but they can, you know, deploy their flaps at that point and hopefully still salvage this takeoff. Yeah. So at that point, you know, once they're in the air, they need to continue. They need to go and, uh, you know, if they need to come back down, they need to go around and, uh, yeah. and, and, and attempt a landing at that point. There is no going back on the ground at that point. Is there a way that they could have uh, taken off okay without the flaps? Like, could is it possible to have done that? Or were they just, I mean, no way this would have worked. So, again, uh, normally at the top of these episodes, uh, we mentioned that I'm not a pilot <laughs> and that uh, I have no, uh, no training. Uh, I've never even taken a flying lesson. Uh, but I'm going to say, theoretically, it would be possible. Uh, you would just have to be going a lot faster. So whenever they are working on figuring out their takeoff procedure and going through their checklist, you know, they have an onboard computer that tells them they kind of calculate the weight, they kind of, you know, calculate how long the runway is, and they figure out what their takeoff speed is. And the computer will tell them that takeoff speed because they have, you know, they've also input their flap values into the computer. Yeah. I'm sure you could input a flap value of zero and it would tell you what your takeoff speed is, but it would be much higher and it would probably be much further down the runway. Okay, and so at the point in which they realized there was nothing they could have done at this point without knowing in advance, no flaps. Like in the moment, there was nothing they could have done. In the moment, maybe if one of them deployed the flaps immediately and the other one put the the throttle throttle. all the way to maximum, maybe. I mean, you know, we, you and I, we we sometimes we try to recreate these incidents. Uh, We make videos and uh, we we post them on the roosterteeth.com website. And uh, so we'll go through Microsoft Flight Simulator and we'll do our best to try to recreate some of these incidents. Maybe we should try this one of these days. We should try a video where we try to take off at too low of a speed. And then as soon as we pull back, immediately deploy flaps and yeah. gun the throttle all the way and see what happens. Uh, yeah, I'm curious. Do that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That, I, I'm actually curious too now. I'm just trying the Because we haven't really done that. Um, it's it just experimented with just takeoff. I feel like most of our... Uh, crash simulations have been like in the air in the air or landing or mm-hmm. yeah trying to get somewhere yeah so uh, we should try it uh people can check that out at roosterteeth.com if they like okay so uh another conclusion here gonna go th- keep going through the list improper crew resource management favored the crew's procedural deviations when they were distracted during flight preparations again this is something i think we've talked about repeatedly crew resource management this is so important to flight safety and they were not adhering to uh, uh, good crew resource management practices. Uh, the big one here, the crew did not select or check the flaps and slats for takeoff. I mean, ultimately, that's what it boils down to. Mm-hmm. Um, the flap should have been deployed. The simultaneous occurrence of various warnings in the cockpit, the crew's mistaken perception regarding the airplane's configuration, and the little time available contributed to not recognizing the stall condition and therefore to not carry out the stall recovery procedure. So again, a bunch of stuff went wrong all at once, and the crew just not reacting properly. The first officer wondered if the situation was caused by an engine failure and momentarily retarded the throttle levers, which is the thing I mentioned. He worried about engine failure and he pulled back on the throttle, which just made the situation even worse. See, that's why I was wondering. I was like, oh, is there a way in which if he'd like maybe done everything correctly, it would have been okay, but it sounds like... Yeah, I don't know. It's possible, but this is an awful situation to be in. 
just because there's so little time. Like I said, there's 14 seconds from the time the wheel came up to the time they crashed. Yeah. The training that the crew had received did not include takeoff stalls, nor was such training required by existing regulations. The connection between the ram air temperature probe overheating on the ground and the fault in the takeoff warning system could not be reliably established in this case. So that's just one of the things we mentioned. They, they didn't realize that the takeoff warning system was tied to that ram air temperature probe overheating. So uh, they have some probable causes here. So basically, the crew lost control of the airplane as a consequence of entering a stall immediately after takeoff due to an improper airplane configuration involving the non-deployment of the slats and flaps following a series of mistakes and omissions, along with the absence of the improper takeoff configuration warning. Uh, the crew did not identify the stall warnings and did not correct said situation after takeoff. They momentarily retarded the engine throttles and increased the pitch angle and did not correct the bank angle, leading to deterioration of the stall condition. The crew did not detect configuration error because they did not properly use the checklists, which contain items to select and verify the positions of the flaps and slats when preparing for the flight. So just overall, a summary of everything we've talked about, just everything came together uh, to cause this incident. Mm -hmm. And specifically, they did not carry out the action to select the flaps and slats with the associated control lever, which is in their after-start checklist. They did not cross-check the position of the lever or the status of the flap and slat indicating lights when executing the after-start checklist. They omitted the check of the flaps and slats during the takeoff briefing item on the taxi checklist. The visual check done when executing the final items on the takeoff imminent checklist was not a real check of the position of the flaps and slats as displayed on the instruments in the cockpit. So really damning for the crew. They mm -hmm. just did not do their checklist properly. Yeah. I mean, as you can see, there are three different checklists we talk about here. There's an after-start <laughs> checklist. There's a taxi checklist. There's a takeoff imminent yeah. checklist. I mean, we, we, we joke about this, but, you know, these checklists are why flying is so safe. There's three different checklists that they're supposed to check the flaps and slats on. And we were talking about the warning sign for the warning sign. It's like... Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like they, they, they should have been checked three different times. They omitted it twice, and then the third time, they just kind of parroted the, the values. Yeah. Which is infuriating, right? I mean, all these people died because of oversight here. All right. So the investigation board identified the following contributing factors. The absence of an improper takeoff configuration warning resulting from the failure of the takeoff warning system to operate, which thus did not warn the crew that the airplane's takeoff configuration was not appropriate. The reason for the failure of the takeoff warning system to function could not be reliably established. Like I said, they think it's the R25 circuit, but they cannot say for 100% certainty. They did find errors in that circuit, but they cannot say definitively that that is what caused it to malfunction. All they can say is that the system did malfunction. Mm -hmm. The other contributing factor here is improper crew resource management, which did not prevent the deviation from procedures in the presence of unscheduled interruptions to flight preparations. So just bad crew resource management. Yeah. So they have a recommendation. They came up with five recommendations. Of course, that's the thing about aviation. Whenever there is an accident, they learn from it, right? The aviation industry as a whole becomes safer. Uh, flying is so safe because when things go wrong, the industry really wants to find out what went wrong, what can we do to fix it and prevent this kind of thing from happening again in the future. So it is recommended that the Federal Aviation Administration of the United States and the European Aviation Safety Agency require the manufacturer, the Boeing company, to include in its aircraft maintenance manual for the DC-9 and MD-80 series, in the troubleshooting manual for the MD-90 series, and in the fault isolation manual for the 717 series, specifically identified instructions to detect the cause and to troubleshoot the fault involving the heating of the ram air temperature probe while on the ground. So basically, 
just give them more troubleshooting procedures for this fault. That way they just don't pull the breaker. Yeah. Which makes sense. Is that more on the um, the manufacturer of the piece? Because they said they called help and they said, well, check the check with the, the workers on the ground. Like Right. So so basically the, the manufacturer writes the troubleshooting procedures. Uh-huh. And uh, so basically they, the, they, the FAA just told Boeing, update your troubleshooting manuals. That way the people on the ground, the maintenance workers, have more troubleshooting they can do. Okay. Instead of just saying, if it's broken, you know, pull the breaker. Yeah. It is recommended that the Federal Aviation Administration of the United States establish mandatory airworthiness instructions to modify the procedures contained in the aircraft flight manuals for the Boeing DC-9, MD-80, MD-90, and B-717 series so as to include a functional check of the takeoff warning system prior to each flight. So this is kind of what you said. It's not necessarily a warning system about the takeoff warning system, but have a functional check of the takeoff warning system prior to the flight. So they added it to the checklist. Correct. Okay. Which wouldn't, in this case, wouldn't have mattered because they weren't paying attention to the checklist, but... It, it could, you know, be helpful in the future. Yeah. Uh, and if you hear me, by the way, in, in a couple of these, I keep saying the Boeing DC-9, MD-80, MD-90, B-717, all of these planes are very similar. Uh, that's why they're kind of all, all grouped together. This particular one was an MD-82 in this incident. That's why they're kind of kind of lump all of these uh, planes together in these recommendations. It is recommended that the European Aviation Safety Agency and the Federal Aviation Administration of the United States require the Boeing company to evaluate the operating conditions, in-service life, reliability, and failure modes of relays in position R25 of the ground sensing system in the DC-9, MD-80, MD-90, B-717 series of airplanes, and that it specify a maintenance program for this component based on the results of said evaluation. So, again, just incorporating a more regular check of this circuit on the ground and um, just have it be something that they evaluate. You know, they determine a service life for it. It doesn't need, when does it need to be replaced? And just have it be part of a a bigger overall maintenance uh, program for these planes. Um, On a related note, somewhat related, I'm going to go a little tangent here. Um, Planes regularly, on a regular schedule, you know, get taken out of service and they get, Basically, they get stripped and tons of maintenance performed on them. I don't know. If, I don't think we've ever talked about this on uh-huh. uh, we haven't on the podcast before. Uh, but this would be part of that, where uh, they basically take a plane into the hangar, take everything out, evaluate everything, replace components that are you know their time is up and that need to be replaced, and then put it all back together. That's good to know. Yeah, there's actually a, a documentary you can watch uh, on Amazon Prime Video. Uh, that shows, uh, I believe it's Air France going through this procedure with uh, one of their planes. I want to say it's a 757 that they take apart. And it's it's really comforting to watch and know that they go through and look at all of these things. Like imagine if for your car at home, you're like, yeah. every, every year I got to take it all apart and look at everything every and make year? sure it's fine. They don't do it necessarily every year. But I was about to say, I was like, but like just the idea, it's like, okay, some because we, we've talked before, like some of these planes will be in service for what, like 20 years? Right. Yeah, like... A really long time but it yeah that is comforting to think that like yeah they just like they check everything and they take it entirely apart because that's the only way you really know i think mm-hmm. is to take that stuff out you know mm-hmm. so uh i looked it up that uh that documentary is called boeing uh 777 the heavy check the heavy check yeah yeah and it's a it's a triple seven that they go through and uh take it all apart and make sure everything's fine with it well i bet they do that for race cars Oh, I'm, I'm sure they do for a race car. They probably do it every race for a race car. Yeah. 
another uh, one here. It is recommended that the European Aviation Safety Agency and the Federal Aviation Administration of the United States revise regulations on the certification of large transport airplanes to add a requirement that ensures that the takeoff warning systems are not disabled by a single failure or that they provide the crew with a clear and unequivocal warning when the system fails. So basically, add some redundancy to the takeoff warning system so that it doesn't have a single point of failure like this. It is recommended that the United States Federal Aviation Administration and European Aviation Safety Agency require takeoff stall recovery as part of initial and recurring training programs of airline transport pilots. So just better training about takeoff stalls, which is something fairly rare, you know. Uh, but this would have been helpful for this crew, you know. They would have uh, known how to recover from this kind of incident. So the final report was issued in July of 2011. But before that, in August of 2010, news outlets were reporting that malware may have infected the computers of the, the airline and resulted in failure for alarms to go off in the aircraft. What? Yeah, it's, it's like one of those weird sensational stories. Uh, there was really no follow-up about it, and it wasn't mentioned in the final report. It's just weird that almost a full year before the report comes out, news media is reporting this weird sensationalized story. Well, again, there was no evidence that this is the case. Uh, it's just a weird footnote for this incident. Uh, huh. that this kind of thing was reported on, which makes it kind of scary, right? Then you start wondering, is it possible for malware to infect a plane? Like, is that something yeah. you have to worry about? Which is something we may end up covering in the future, you know? Uh, that uh -huh. may be down the road, there may be an incident because of something like that. But that was not the case in this particular incident. And as far as I know, it's never uh, caused any, uh, any accidents, any crashes in the past. I'm going to circle back real fast here, Chris, to something we mentioned at the top. Uh, like I said, when I first read what happened on this uh, flight, my first instinct was that they weren't getting enough lift, that it was probably they didn't deploy their flaps, and that it was a bad airplane configuration. And that's, that's what it ended up being. But you know, in the course of the investigation, they go through a lot of different theories. And one of the theories that they had was that maybe one of the plane's thrust reversers had gone off, and that it caused the airplane to go to one side and crash. And when they found the wreckage, one of the thrust reversers was actually deployed. But what had happened was when the plane crashed and hit the ground, the force of the impact had caused the thrust reverser to pop out. It didn't deploy in flight. That's the thing that the plane uses when it lands to slow down, the thrust reverser. Right. It redirects the force of the engine thrust forward. That way it helps slow the plane down. Which could have also, yeah, that could have slowed it down and made it not. And made it turn to one side. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, we talked a lot about the checklists and how that they're there for a reason. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating. You know, like we just beyond doing this podcast, just at Rooster Teeth, do a lot of video content where we record separately all from our homes. And after having several recording issues, we created a checklist for recording where we all go through, okay, do we have this video setting, this audio setting is isolated. We have our own checklist to prevent our issues and we record you know just about every day and sometimes we mess up even with the checklist mm -hmm. because we can breeze over steps because you just do it over and over and over so i mean we've done that i mean the yeah. issue with us is like we just oh we 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 lose a a recording session you know right yeah it's it's not life or death yeah but i mean they still messed up but i you do understand that like the repetition of those checklists or they almost become like, yeah, of course, why would the settings be changed this time? Right. And it's, it's interesting you bring that up, Chris, because different groups have different motivations to look at incidents in from different perspectives, right? Mm -hmm. And in particular, in this incident, the pilots union 
said that it was not the crew's fault, but rather it was the airplane's fault because the takeoff warning system did not alert them that there was a problem. And of course, the pilot's union is going to say that because they don't want the blame to be placed on the crew. So it's interesting how you can objectively look at facts and data and come to a slightly different conclusion and say, well, it's not necessarily their fault. Even if they messed up, the plane should have caught this error and alerted them to it. Yeah. But speaking specifically to you talking about us having checklists, it's easy Mm -hmm. to kind of do what the captain did in this case, right? Like you're talking about, to just be like, yeah, yeah, there's no reason it should have changed. You know, just kind of like, yes, it's checked, it's checked, it's all correct. Uh, Whenever we go through those checklists, personally, I look at the setting and as I check it, I point at it and I say, check or correct. Like the physical act of pointing helps reinforce Mm -hmm. it to me. Like, yes, I am looking at it and it is correct. Uh, like I yeah. would point at things on my screen like that is right, that is right, that is right. Yeah, that's that's good. I should start pointing. I've heard that um, in the, the train system in Japan, when um, people who work at the stations want to verify, or even conductors want to verify that the track is clear, they point because it reinforces. They point and they say what the, what the result is. Like they point yeah. and they say the track is clear or like it's safe to go in that direction. Because there's something about the physicality of pointing and activating, you know, a physical mechanism of your body in addition to the mental aspect really drives it home. And uh, the railway in Japan is extremely safe. It's like that's one of the things they credit the safety to is just that simple thing of pointing. So I try to, so I, I try to incorporate uh-huh. that as much as possible uh, when I when I want to verify that things are right. Um, this is just I'm just curious of the survivors. Were any of them the pilots or crew? No, the crew all uh, perished in the flight. It was uh, 18 of the passengers who okay. uh, managed to survive the incident. Uh, some of them, like I said, they crashed into a um, a river, and some of them were tangled up with wreckage, you know, in the water, and they had to like try to untangle themselves and get out of their seats and uh, you know get to safety. It was it was really really bad. That's yeah, that's it's wild that they just happened to be in the river. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's Spanair 5022. Um, terrible accident but hopefully something that the industry did learn from uh, as i always want to remind everyone to follow us on social media at black box down pod on twitter and instagram and we'll be back again next week with another episode yeah and uh if if you're interested in uh, the flight simulator videos we talked about we'll have a link for those um you can find them there for uh first members on roosterseat.com which is our essentially like our patreon tier of um listener it's people who want to support rooster teeth and the things that we make you can get a seven day free trial uh so you don't have to have any skin in the game if you like it you can keep uh yeah. supporting us either monthly or six months or annually that's up to you but like i said seven day free trial it's totally free and it helps us even yes. the, even signing up for the free trial helps us tell them chris sent you yeah <laughs> all right thanks bye bye